This year we have been uh, in a study of church history uh, during our Wednesday night chapel gatherings. Last week uh, we looked at the Reformation in England in the 16th century. You see the Protestant Reformation was sweeping Western Europe. It was a bit slow to come to England largely because the King of England, Henry VIII, was an avowed Catholic. In fact, in 1521, the very year of the Diet of Worms, when Luther made his famous Here I Stand speech, young King Henry wrote a work defending the seven sacraments for which he was given the title Defender of the Faith from, by, by P, uh, Pope Leo X, the guy who was after Martin Luther. But then some things happened to change the direction of England, which eventually had a significant impact on the new world. Not discounting the sovereignty of God, we are largely Protestant because England and Scotland became so. You do understand that most of the 13 colonies were, were Protestant. There was only one that was Catholic. Do you know which one that was? Maryland, named after... Queen Mary, the mother, I mean, the, the wife of Charles I, who was Catholic. And, and it was founded because Catholics were fleeing, England, fleeing the persecution in England. It came to the new, well, what happened to change all of that? It's a rather sordid story. King Henry was married to Catherine of Argonne, and she bore him no male heirs which, by the way, he desperately wanted. Oh, she did give him Mary, who became known as Mary I, or also Bloody Mary, an avowed Catholic who persecuted and killed Protestants. <laughs> they never did get along. You see, the problem at this time in history was that there had been no female monarch in England to ascend the throne. Queens, yes, who were married to kings, but no queens who had ascended the throne. And so Henry wanted a male heir. And so in 1527, he decided to seek from the Pope an annulment of his marriage to, to Catherine so he could marry another one, Anne Boleyn. But the Pope inexplicably refused to grant the annulment. Long story short, the king said, no problem. I don't like the Pope having so much power in England anyway. And through a series of pronouncements, broke from the Catholic Church and named himself the head of the Church of England. This was called the Act of Supremacy and said in part that the king was, don't miss this, quote, the only supreme head of the Church of England. Get rid of the Pope. Name yourself head of the church. Get your archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, to annul your marriage and then marry you to Anne. He did. By the way, Anne gave birth to a daughter named Elizabeth, who later became Elizabeth I. It's interesting to note that these two women, Mary I and Elizabeth I, ascended the throne later, but not yet. See, Henry had no male heir. And so he had Anne executed on spurious charges so that he could marry his third wife, Jane Seymour. Finally, Jane figured things out and bore him a son named 
you do know it's the man who determines the gender. But anyway, Henry didn't know that. Jane bore him a, a boy named Edward, Edward VI, who followed his father Henry as king at the ripe old age of nine. He only ruled till he was 16, but he was an avowed Protestant. When he died, that's when his half-sister Mary became queen, that avowed Catholic. Listen, the whole thing was a disaster. But here's what I want you to see in this whole story. King Henry VIII broke from the Catholic Church, not because he wasn't a Catholic, he was, but, but in doing so, became self-proclaimed the supreme head of the church. He replaced the Pope, and he was a king, and also the highest, dare I say, priest of the church. Of course, you can't actually do that. As far as Protestants were concerned, this was one of the challenges with the whole Catholic church. The Pope was supposedly the successor to Peter and, and the highest priest of, of the priests. How so? Well, the, the Pope acted as Christ's vicar or representative on earth, and the priests, what do priests do? Well, they interceded for the people. Really? The problem, you see, was there was already a highest priest, a high priest who interceded with God for his people within Christianity, and his name was Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And, and by the way, Jesus did not take the title of high priest on by himself. No, he was, he was named so by his father. Oh, oh, and Jesus did not have the sordid affairs and successive marriages and sinful life of Henry. And, and by the way, many of the popes. No, Jesus was the perfect high priest, the, 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 the only and perfect one to represent people to God. And as such, we do not need imperfect priests to stand between us and God any longer. We do not need continued sacrifices, even called the Mass, to provide atonement for us. The perfect high priest Jesus provided the perfect sacrifice once for all. And further, this is, this is the only one who was both priest and king. Well, I guess two, if you, if you count the priesthood order from which Jesus, to which Jesus belonged. All that by way of introduction to a rather challenging text in our continuing study of Hebrews, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and following say this. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided or the wayward, since he himself also is beset or subject to weaknesses or weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes, this, takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God. Even as Aaron was, whoever that is. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. 
did not exalt himself, but, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications, petitions with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he, Jesus, was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That's a bit challenging. And and having been made perfect, what? He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Does anybody at this moment want to change places with me? Read this text earlier this week, scratched my head and thought, what in the world am I going to say about this? Last week, we we saw that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who, having completed his work, sat down at the right hand of the Father. From there, he, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, having lived as a man and having experienced every kind of temptation, dare I say weakness, just like us, but without sin. And so we can go to the throne of grace to receive uh, mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's a great text, man. I could preach that one. By that paragraph at the end of chapter 4, the author transitions to his third major section of the book. We've seen that Jesus is, is greater than the angels in, in, in chapters 1 and 2. He's greater than Moses and Joshua in chapters 3 and 4. But now, Jesus is greater than the high priest Aaron, and by the way, every high priest since then. In fact, he's greater than the entire Levitical system, greater than every sacrifice that's ever been offered because he is the fulfillment of everything that that system that the old covenant pointed to. Jesus is just greater. Now, greater than angels, first two chapters, Moses and Joshua, next two chapters, This section will extend all the way to the middle of chapter 10 with a significant warning passage tucked in. So, since he's going to talk a lot about Old Testament priests, namely the high priest and those Old Testament sacrifices, the author starts by introducing us to this position of high priest. You see, the high priest stood if you will, as the supreme head (laughs) of the Levitical system. He tells us, the author, what the requirements for this high priest are and how Jesus perfectly met those requirements. And as such, he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That's a little concerning, but then we remember that, that, that in Hebrews... This begins with belief and then perseveres through a lifetime of faithful obedience. So, today, I just need you to know a lot of foundational information, necessary groundwork for Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the role of high priest, okay? So, you need, you need to stick with me. Let me give you the outline of the text. We see the qualifications and duties of the Old Testament high priest, and then we're going to see the qualifications and duties fulfilled by Jesus as the greater 
New Testament high priest. And by the way, this second point, we'll see how Jesus is both priest and king and a whole lot better than Henry. In those first four verses, we'll see the qualification and duties of the Old Testament high priest. Three things to note. First, notice the high priest was appointed from among men on behalf of men. In other words, if the high priest were was going to represent people, he must be a people. He's got to be a, a person. One of my commentaries said that if he was going to represent angels, then he would have to be an angel. If he was going to represent a horse, he'd have to be a horse, of course. But he didn't, you see. He represented people, and so he had to be a person. He was taken from men on behalf of men. And we remember chapter 2, where the author said of Jesus, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, since they are human, he himself also partook of the same flesh and blood. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So if he's going to represent us, he's got to be like us, taken from among men. Jesus is going to represent us to God. He must. In fact, he had to be made one like us. The incarnation is incredible. Notice second, in addition to being one in solidarity with humanity, the high priest did not take this role upon himself. He didn't just decide. Verse 1 says he was appointed to the role, not elected, Appointed to the role. Verse 4 says, no one takes the honor to himself, but rather receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, who's this Aaron? Aaron was the brother of Moses. When God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai. There he gave them the law, often called the law of Moses, summed up in the Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone. But he also gave them, at the very same time, the plans for the tabernacle and the Levitical system. You, you, you see, when the Israelites would break the law and break the law, they would. <laughs> they would need a system to find forgiveness. That, that system would include priests who would intercede, you see, intercede for the, for the people. That's what people need. We need a priest to intercede for us. And they needed a, a, a system of sacrifices. And, and here we find, then we, in the Old Testament, we find the priest would come from one tribe, the tribe of Levi, of which Moses and Aaron were a part. Further, the, the priest would need, this, this group of priests would need a supreme priest, a high priest, a head priest, who would represent all of the people to include the priest and himself to God. We talked about this last week. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle behind the curtain to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He did this only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, Aaron was the first high priest chosen by God, as was the tribe of Levi. They, they did not take the honor upon themselves. They were appointed to the role. And the descendants of Aaron then would serve in the role of high supreme head priest. And then notice something else. The tribe of Levi, this is important, was not the tribe from which kings would come. No such thing as a Levitical, a Levitical king. 
The first king was who? Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. But, but, but he and his tribe lost the, the kingship. How? Very interestingly. Among other things, Saul, as the king, took on the role of a priest. He decided one day well, he was tired of waiting for Samuel, and he decided to offer sacrifices. He can't do that. He's the king. He's not a priest. And the king was not of the tribe of Levi. So Saul lost the kingship, and the role passed to David and to the tribe of Judah. All kings in the future would be of the tribe of Judah. In fact, a descendant of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So don't miss it. In order to be a king, you had to be the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. In order to be a priest, you had to be the tribe of of Levi, and you can't be both. You see, you can't be from both tribes and be priest and king, well, unless your priesthood comes from another source. I have to just pause right here and say how amazing this book is. We have written over 1,500 years, all over the then known world, 60 different authors, brought together under the inspiration, perseverance, uh, preservation of God, sitting in your lap or in your electronic device, and it's perfect, and it fits together incredibly. It's amazing. We're going to see that this, this morning. We'll come back to this other priesthood in just a moment. So to be the high priest, you had to be a man to represent the people, to be the high priest, you had to be appointed by God. You could just take the honor on for yourself. And you had to be of the tribe of Levi, which leads to his duties. I've already said it. He, he was to act on behalf of people in things pertaining to or in relation to God, namely in offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what priests did, you see. They, they represented people to God as a mediator to offer gifts, that speaks of all of those non-animal gifts, those non-sacrificial gifts, if you will, like grain and, and meal, oil, incense offerings, fellowship, thank offering, things like that. And sacrifices for sins. Don't, don't miss that. Sacrifices for sin. That's what priests do for you because, well, people are sinners. All of them. Yeah. Uh, they, they broke the law. The, the, the law of Moses that God gave them at Mount Sinai didn't take him any time at all. Didn't take you any time at all when you came out. Remember, uh, those tablets of stone were in the golden box called the Ark of the Co Covenant underneath the golden lid called the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And it was the priest's job to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. We understand this because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness, no remission of sin. Notice the attitude with which the high priest was able to approach the people with gentleness for, for the ignorant and misguided or wayward people. That's what people generally are. Sinners who, are, who disobey and misguided, wayward ignorance. But, but, but the high priest could and should deal gently with them. Why? Since he himself was beset with or subject to similar weakness, meaning yeah, high priests were sinners too. All those priests you confess to, sinners. 
That's why verse 3 says that he, the high priest, would offer sacrifices for the people and also for himself. So what would happen on the Day of Atonement? You can read all about Leviticus chapter 16. He would offer first a sacrifice of a bull for himself and for his family. And then he would offer a goat for the sins of the people. Then he would take the blood of both the bull and the male goat and offer it on the mercy seat, on that lid, within the Holy of Holies. Again, we talked about this last week. Those sacrifices were offered once a year on the Day of Atonement for, for himself, for his family, for the people. And the blood would be, don't miss this, would be sprinkled on the lid of the golden box below which were those two tablets of stone engraved with the law that the people had broken, above which was the glory of God and the blood acted as a barrier between God and the law broken. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. All that brings us then to our second point. That's the, that's the Old Testament priest, you see. It was a type of this very special New Testament. The qualification and duties fulfilled perfectly by Jesus as the New Testament high priest, verses 5 and following. He, he has to meet these qualifications and fulfill these duties outlined in these first few verses if he is going to be a faithful and merciful high priest to us. So, starting with verses 5 and 6, we de they demonstrate how Jesus was appointed by high priest by God, just like he was supposed to be. So also Christ did not glorify or exalt himself so as to become high priest by himself is the idea. And he didn't say, hey, I'll do it. Because as a man, he didn't take the honor on himself. He was appointed to the role by God. So how was he appointed? The author quotes two Old Testament passages and applies them, actually messianic passages, and applies them to Jesus. The first we've already seen back in chapter 1. He quotes Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the, but the author applies that messianic psalm here a little differently than in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he quoted the text to show that Jesus was greater than the angels because he's the very son of God. But here, he means it this way. He was appointed, if you will, the son of God on the day he was begotten by God. When, when was that? Lots of discussion, but we can summarize it by saying that Jesus became the exalted Son of God at His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that He was not already and eternally the Son of God. He, he was, but in His humanity, and that's, that's the emphasis in this passage, His humanity. In His humanity, having completed His work, He was exalted to the highest degree, Father's right hand, received the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord, and He was declared with power to be the Son of God. He was already the Son of God, but He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, you see. And the author, so Psalm 2, okay, we get that one. Kind of applied a different way, but we get that. But then the author quotes a rather obscure passage from Psalm 110. Now, we know Psalm 110. It is, after all, the most quoted passage, Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's that Messianic Psalm applied to Jesus. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, said to my right hand, until I make uh, uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, yeah, I know that one. We recognize that. In fact, the author quoted that one back in chapter 1, too. Okay. But now he quotes verse 4 of Psalm 110, a rather obscure passage. You are 
a priest forever, this son who is seated on a throne, who is king, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What? Who in the world is Melchizedek? And who would name their son Melchizedek? Now I know, somebody's going to come up to me and say, I have an uncle Melchizedek. I'm sorry. Is that another name for Aaron? Not exactly. In fact, no. Couldn't be, you see. Because you can't come from the tribe of Levi and Judah at the same time. We first meet Melchizedek way back in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham was on his way back from rescuing his nephew Lot, who had been captured by a group of kings. On the way back, Abraham was met by this Melchizedek, who we find out then was both king and priest, Henry, of Salem, that is Jerusalem. To him, Abraham gave a tithe, that is 10% of all the spoils that he gained from the battle when he rescued Lot. We'll come back to that in Hebrews chapter 7 when I talk to you about giving. But for now, can't wait, but for now, you should know that we don't really know who this Melchizedek was other than king and priest of Salem. And then he disappears in the rest of the Old Testament. Then he disappears after Genesis 14 until Psalm 110 where we read, the Son of God, the Messiah to come, would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, not Aaron, Melchizedek. And by the way, Melchizedek disappears again until our passage this morning. Some things to notice. First, note that Melchizedek was both priest and king. Kind of making a big deal of that. He, he, he was not an Israelite, but he was a king and priest of Salem. Notice second, that he, since he was not an Israelite, he was not of the tribe of Levi, which meant he could be both priest and king. Third, notice Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek, which meant he too could be both priest and king, and he is. Because if he was of the order of Aaron, he could not be king. He could be a priest of the priestly order of Melchizedek, and he could be a king as a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus met some rather important qualifications. First, he did not take the honor on of high priest upon himself. He was appointed to the role. Second, uh, he was able to serve as a priest. In fact, the high priest, since he was of a priestly order, not just any order, but what Psalm 110 said he had to be of, and he was. And third, as the Son of God seated at his right hand per Psalm 2 as David's son. He is reigning king of kings. Jesus is high priest of his people and he is the king of his people. Sorry, Henry. And said with respect, sorry, Pope. How does he meet the qualifications of dealing gently with his people since he himself was also beset with weakness? That's a little confusing. Verse 7, he suffered in his flesh. That's weakness, just like people do. In the days of his flesh, 
He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one, that is the Father, able to save him from death. We've talked about this verse already. This could be referring to actually many different times of prayer as Jesus walked the earth. After all, he knew why he'd come. Over and over, he told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, the same city where Melchizedek was priest and king, and to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He would be mistreated, beaten, eventually killed, crucified. It's why, after all, he had come to give his life a ransom for many. He also told them, yes, that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. So he could, though, have spoken to the Father about this many different times in the days, not singular, in the days of his flesh. He could have had many conversations, but surely we know he did so in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed over and over, sweating great drops of blood. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath beset with weakness. I want you to understand that in his humanity, Jesus struggled. He suffered greatly, more than any man ever has. Any. Because he knew that he would bear in his body the sins of the world. He knew that he would bear the wrath of God. So he sought his father. If there's any other way, let it be so. Verse 8, although... He was a son, not just any son, the son of Psalm 2. He learned obedience. He's praying. I want to do this. But he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Again, this does not mean that he was disobedient prior to this point. No, it means that in his humanity, through great suffering and temptation, he learned, this is important, he learned obedience demonstrated by drinking the cup. Like every man, he learned obedience. But unlike any man, he learned it perfectly. Think of it this way. Those of you who are parents, you, te- you taught or you teach your children obedience through their disobedience. Jesus learned obedience through his obedience. You see. Although he was tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin. Verse 9, and having been made perfect, again, not that he was not already and always infinitely perfect, but in his humanity, that's the emphasis, having learned obedience and perfectly lived obedience, he attained human perfection and became, as a result, to all those who obey him, the source, and I might add the only source, of eternal salvation which brings us to the duty of the high priest. Yes, he met the qualifications perfectly. He was a man from among men, therefore able to represent men to God. And as a man, he suffered and and faced temptation of humanity. He's able to deal gently with these we we ignorant, misguided people. Further, he was appointed to the role uh, by his father. He did not assume it for himself. Yes, he was uh, of the order of a priesthood, namely the Oronic, I mean the, uh, the Melchizedekian, is the way you say that, priesthood. Therefore, he was able to fulfill the duties of the high priest in things pertaining to God, namely in offering a sacrifice for sins. But unlike every and all 
former high priest, he did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he knew no sin. He became sin for us. And to be clear, when he offered a sacrifice, there was no blood of bull and goats since the author later tells us the blood of bull and goats could never forever deal with our sin. No, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the shedding of his own blood because blood, listen, blood there must be for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he must take it on and crucify it. Do you see the glorious picture the author is painting? So, having been made perfect through perfect obedience, he became the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. This is eternal salvation, never ending. And as I said earlier, this obedience is found in the obedience of faith and proven by the obedience of perseverance. This is what he's pleading us with us to do. See, the author will now spend several chapters talking about how Jesus perfectly fulfills all, all of those Old Covenant, Old Testament promises and types. But, but first will come a severe warning that will go like this. If Jesus is the one and only perfect high priest, if he is the one and only perfect sacrifice, why would you quit? Why would you leave? Don't, don't quit. Don't leave him because if you do, listen, he's going to say it very strongly, it will be impossible to renew you to repentance. There's no other way. I did skip one phrase at the end of verse 7 that I now want to close with. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offered both prayers and petitions, supplications, with crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Father, we know what he said. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That, that was his prayer. And at the end of verse 7, we read, and he was heard because of his piety, his, his reverence, his, his personal righteousness and obedience. He was, he was right. So it was heard. Now you need to know that that word heard implies not only that God heard the prayer, but that he answered the prayer. He gave him what he asked for. And you say, what? R really? He gave Jesus what he asked for. It's led to all kinds of interpretations, trying to help this verse. <laughs> uh, uh, for example, some say that he was praying that he would not drop dead right there in the garden. After all, he was troubled to the point of death. His soul was troubled to the point of death. He was losing blood, sweating great drops of blood. Father, help me not die right here. Help me make it to the cross. God heard and answered that prayer. It's possible. I don't think so. Others have said that he was praying that he not be left in the place of the dead. Father, don't leave me dead. 
Don't allow my body to see decay. And God heard and answered that prayer when he raised him three days later. Possible, possible. Uh, uh, Both perhaps possible, second more likely, but others, I think, rightly point out that his prayer was, Father, if it's possible... Didn't he he believe that God can answer prayer? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And it was not possible. Not if there was to be eternal salvation granted to his people. So God answered the prayer. If it's possible... It's not. He heard him. He answered him. Further, the son prayed, not my will, but your will be done. God answered that prayer too. Now, every once in a while, I will hear someone say, when we pray for something big, for healing, for example, that we should not pray your will be done, that such a prayer is a cop-out. Of course, they say, it is his will to heal. And so, by saying your will be done, you are allowing yourself, allowing yourself an out if he, choose, if he does not heal. You are, in fact, demonstrating a lack of faith. How many of you have ever heard that before? Yeah. I want you to understand that I do not, in fact, I... If I can be angry right now, I do not believe that for a minute. I I do believe that God can heal and, in fact, does heal. I, I believe that God is able to answer every one of my prayers. But I also believe that that his answer to every one of my prayers is right. Because I close my prayers with, in Jesus' name. I don't know about you. Which means, for Jesus' sake, or according to your will. You see, that is, after all, how we come to the throne of grace. Through the one who sits at the Father's right hand. We come not on our own merit, but on His. And God is altogether good. He is altogether sovereign. And I can trust that His answers, which are sometimes no... Because the Son is interceding for me at the Father's right hand and interpreting my silly prayers. His answers are altogether good, always for His glory and always for His good. Because whatever my God ordains is right. He will always hear, He will always answer. It is not a cop-out to pray, your will be done, Jesus. He will always answer according to his good and glorious purposes. Do you believe that? Stand for prayer. Father, a rather obscure phrase at the end of verse 7 And he was heard because of his piety. And I believe that we are heard 
because of his piety. We come to the throne of grace to find help in time of need, find, receive mercy, find grace because of his piety, because he was faithful, because while he struggled in his humanity, he suffered and died and is able to deal with us gently as our great high priest seated at your right hand. And so, Father, we trust you for our care. You are altogether good. You are altogether sovereign. You will do what is right. We trust you for that. Thank you, Jesus, for interceding for us. In Jesus' name, amen.